Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfell. We continue our series today, Easter, according to the Gospel of John, with a message titled, That One Should Die for All. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18, verses 12 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want to begin by reading today's text, and it's John 18, 12 to 14. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, you might wonder why I have chosen so short a passage for an entire address, but I have. Only three verses, verses that we might easily read in Passover. You know, it's just a, a few short biographical details in the arrest and trial of Jesus. And yet, I would argue that it's sometimes in the small details that we miss a much wider drama. So let me begin by setting the stage. You know, most of us know that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And when we say that, within the context of the drama of the whole world, we mean that Jesus died for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, to say that he died for the sins of the world, we do begin with a presupposition that the entire world is lost in sin. And we, that is all of us, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether we have access to God's laws as did the Jews, or whether we're ignorant of God's laws as were most of the Gentiles, in either case, we are all alienated from God. But saying it that way is not enough. We're enemies of God by nature. It is our nature that's out of our inner character that we're deeply hostile to the one true God. We worship other things than God. Our hearts as John Kelvin once said, are idol factories, constantly constructing new and fresh gods for us to worship. We either curse the one true God or we imagine him as inferior to ourselves and thus refuse to bow to infinite holiness. And the consequence is that we've all gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And yet, Whether we're aware that we've broken divine law or whether we merely suppress the self-evident truth of God's care of our world and of our lives, at any rate, we all stand guilty. We're sinners. And to say so is to say something significant as well as something shameful. And it's for that reason, that is, innate and inherent sinfulness, that will explain that when God the Son entered into the world, as John states at the outset of his gospel, that the world... The wider Gentile world did not know him, and his own people, that is the Jewish people, did not receive him. Indeed, we thoroughly rejected him. You know, the three verses I've read today are verses that indicate the partnership between Jews and Gentiles in the arrest of Jesus and in his eventual condemnation and crucifixion. So let's start where John does. Jesus is in the garden, and we know that place to be the Garden of Gethsemane, located on the Mount of Olives directly opposite from Jerusalem, separated from the city by a deep gorge called the Kidron Valley. John tells us that Jesus entered into a walled enclosure, which, you know, as we've seen, left him with no means of escape. And furthermore, he often went into that place. And that would mean that Judas, who was leading the men who would arrest Jesus, would be able to find him with ease. You know, I've been making the point that Jesus was deliberately positioning himself so that he would be arrested. It was his predetermined will 
that he should die at Passover. But today we're also going to see something of his original arrest. John tells us who it was that arrested and bound Jesus. First, he mentions the band of soldiers, which is a reference, as we've seen in our previous study, to a cohort of some 600 Roman soldiers. They were being led, says John, by their captain. This was the Roman contingent, but, says John, they were also, in his words, the officers of the Jews. And it's right here that we need to stop. You know, Carson thinks that the reason why John mentions the Roman contingent first is that they surged forward after Peter had taken out his sword and had attempted to strike a blow. And you will remember, he succeeded in cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant, and that would suggest that the officers of the Jews were taking the lead, and the Romans only acted after that matter with the sword. And furthermore, please notice that after Jesus is arrested and bound— If it had been the Romans who were in the lead or were providing leadership, then they would have immediately taken Jesus to either the Antonio Fortress or some other Roman garrison where he would have immediately been imprisoned and then awaiting trial. But as we see from our text, nothing of that kind happened. Jesus was arrested and then bound and then taken to the house of Annas. And from that, it's clear that the Jews and not the Romans were in charge of the arrest of Jesus. And that becomes even more clear if we go back to chapter 18, verse 3. See, there we read that Judas procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. That's to say, Judas agreed that he would hand Jesus over to the Jews. But the Jews were not sure that they had the resources to hunt him down and capture him. And so the religious leadership took the initiative to go to the Roman authorities and gain permission that the Romans send a considerable force to back up the Jewish arresting officers. I make mention of all of that because John is very clear on this one point. It was the Jews and not the Romans who took the leadership in arresting Jesus. Leave out the Jews, and the Romans would not have arrested Jesus at all. Yep, the Romans are complicit, but it was the Jewish leadership that led the way. And because John presents the arrest of Jesus in just that way, you know, that has led a great deal of modern scholars of a more liberal persuasion to argue that John, that is, the book of John, is a deeply anti-Semitic book. That's important to address this because living on this side of history, that is, after the Nazi Holocaust, that many people are very sensitive to that charge. Indeed, going back even further, you might also know that a charge that was frequently brought against the Jews during the Middle Ages and into the period of the Inquisition was that the Jews were Christ killers. I had years ago a Jewish friend who lent me a book. It was on the history of Christian anti-Semitism, and it took its beginnings from the pages of the New Testament. And it's for that reason that we need to seriously ask the question, that when John says that the Jews took leadership in arresting Jesus, first, is John an anti-Semitic book? And second, when John says the Jews, what does he mean? Does he mean to use the word as we use it today, that is, referring to all the people who are of Israel, or does he refer to a more specific group? So let's start with a second question. When John uses the phrase, the Jews, who is he referring to? And that's a very important question, not just to answer the question of anti-Semitism, but also to help us to understand the very nature of the book of John. See, from my count, John uses the phrase, the Jews, 64 times in his book. 
And as you might expect, it's simply not possible to discuss every use of the term in you know the short time that we have to discuss that today. So suffice it to say that the entire book, and that is the entire book of John, he actually uses the phrase, the Jews, in different ways. And context will have to tell us what he has in mind. However, for the purpose of our study, it's interesting that in just two chapters, that is, in chapters 18 and 19, John uses the phrase, the Jews, a full 19 times. And that's our context, these two chapters. When John uses the phrase, the Jews, 19 times in two chapters, who exactly is he referring to? Well, in verse 12, the verse we just read, we see that it was the officers of the Jews who arrested Jesus. And so does that mean the officers of the Jewish race? Well, clearly it does not. It means rather the officers of the Jews who had charge over the nations. And so here, the Jews means the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. So we could say in verse 12, the phrase, the Jews means the Sanhedrin. Next, go to verse 14, and there we read, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews. And again, this refers to a consideration that Caiaphas gave as to whether or not Jesus should be arrested. So please notice, this was not a matter of discussion for the entire nation. It was rather a matter of discussion for the Sanhedrin. Now go to chapter 18, verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And again, as before, the phrase the Jews does not mean all the Jews, rather the religious authorities, the people who are in charge. See, while it's not always the case, most times when John mentions the Jews, he's not referring to Israel as a whole. He's referring to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Indeed, we can say that in the vast majority of cases, when John uses the term the Jews, that's what he's talking about, the religious authorities who gave leadership in the land. So we need to understand exactly what's going on in the book of John. John wants us to know that the Jews are the religious authorities and the religious authorities engage the Roman Gentiles to conspire against Jesus, hope of the world. What does all that say about us and about our sin? You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. I've asked two questions, but I've only answered one. 
I have said that when John uses the phrase the Jews, that he doesn't necessarily mean all of the nation of Israel. Quite often that phrase refers most specifically to the Jewish religious leadership establishment, most specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he also uses it in even a more defined way to refer to the Sanhedrin charged with enforcing the law of Israel. Uh, But that leads us to the first question, which is, is the book of John an anti-Semitic book? It's because John takes pains to make sure that we understand that the Romans, although they do have complicity in the death of Jesus, did not take leadership. But if we think that, I fear that we would have to charge the entire First Testament as an anti-Semitic book as well. I mean, just this morning in my private devotions, I was reading Psalm 78, which is a, in poetic form, it recounts the many sins of Israel as a nation. Verse 10 says, they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. And then the Psalm gives examples of the many sins of Israel, saying that Israel was ungrateful, refusing to remember the one who had redeemed them from slavery. But that's not just the testimony of one Psalm. I mean, the books of the prophets, to a large degree, are taken up in assigning blame to Israel for her sins. Let me give you one of hundreds of examples. Hosea 4, 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. See, it becomes very clear from reading the First Testament that the reasons why the Babylonians destroyed Israel and took the people into captivity, burned down her temple, and killed so many was because of Israel's sins. That's the way the entire Bible talks. It assigns blame to Israel and makes the claim that the many sufferings of Israel came about because of her many sins. Well, now you might argue that perhaps the First Testament can talk that way. After all, it's, you know, it's a Jewish book. But my dear friend, when we come to the New Testament, what do you think you find? It's also a Jewish book. John, the writer of the book of John, who is he? He's a Jew. And he stands in line with the prophets who condemned Israel for her many sins. And then finally, John says they even turned against their own Messiah. Well, then, if that's the case, we who are not Jewish, that is, we Gentiles, should we then look on Israel as they did in the Middle Ages and castigate Israel as Christ killers? Now, even if you're tempted to think that way, then you exhibit your own sin in a horrible way. See, there's a verse in the book of Romans that sets the record straight for all times. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. We put it another way. Whatever the law says, and for that matter, whatever the First Testament says, it speaks specifically to the Jewish people as a whole. And it does so in such a way that every mouth might be silenced. That is, once we understand the nature of the Bible, it causes all of us, Gentiles as well, to shut up, to put a stopper in our mouth, stop talking. For what God did and what he said to Israel makes everyone, including the Gentiles, accountable to God. That's because God has put Israel on center stage 
and as he shows us their many sins, we also see a mirror held up to our own lives. That, says God, is not just how Israel looks. It's how all of us look. And so let's get back to the arrest of Jesus. Yeah, of course. It was the Jews who took leadership. But that's not because the Jews are worse than the rest of us, but rather that God used the actions of the Jews to have us take a look at what everyone else would have also done if we had been in their place. No, no. It's not that the Jews are Christ killers. It is this. Both Jews and Gentiles together, the entire human race, we are all Christ killers. God sent his son into the world, and the human race, in our collective animosity against God, killed the Son of God, and that's the story of Easter. So let's get back to our text in John 18, 12 to 14. See, we noticed that Jesus was arrested and then he was bound, and I take that to mean that they used shackles to bind him, even though at that time it would have been evident to everyone that he had no intention of escaping. Now then, our text says he was brought to Annas, and then the text adds that he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So Annas had been the high priest from the years 86 until 15, a period of nine years, and then the Romans deposed him. And if you go forward to Acts chapter 4, 5 to 6, let me explain. See, in that passage, that is, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel. And Acts 4, 5 to 6 says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Well, did Annas become high priest again? And the answer is no, he did not. But he is called the high priest, so let me explain that. You know, in the United States, it's customary to call an American president the president even after his term of office is over and he's left the office. And that's what we find here in the Bible. But there's more. Not only is Annas still called a high priest when Jesus is arrested, but he's still exercising enormous power. The current serving high priest, that was his son-in-law, the man who married his daughter. That's how he got the office, through Annas. Caiaphas would rule as high priest from 18 to 36 AD, and after he's done, Anna's son John would serve as high priest, so I hope you're getting a picture. Indeed, no fewer than five of Anna's sons were high priests at one point in time. And Jesus is taken to the man who pulls all the strings behind the scenes. He's not a man to be trifled with. All the high priests knew that this man, when he nodded, that's when something got done. So what does it mean? It means from the outset, in terms of the trial of Jesus, the fix was in. Annas knew that he could control the entire Sanhedrin and that in the end, as is true of all the despots of this world, whether great or small, others are tested not in their commitment to the law, but in their loyalty to the dictator. That's who Annas is. Later on, when we come to verse 19 of this chapter, when the high priest questions Jesus, and when he doesn't like the answers, he orders one of the officers to punch Jesus in the mouth. Yeah, that high priest, that wasn't Caiaphas. It was Annas, the man who held all the power. And it's there to the house of a power-hungry monster, not to a court of law, that Jesus is originally taken. Yeah, this is not law. This is a miscarriage of justice. But as John takes pains to tell us what has occurred, he makes sure that we also hear another piece of news. 
The current reigning high priest is Caiaphas, and John reminds us what Caiaphas has already said. Verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, Caiaphas said that because in his mind, he saw looming clouds of great trouble. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and in so doing, the people of Israel were astonished. This man stood before a tomb. He had commanded the stone to be rolled away, and as they did, the stench of death shot through the door into the open air, and everyone smelled it. It was a sickening smell of death. And there in the face of death, Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out. Everyone's astonished. This man has authority over life and death. And when that news hit Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin heard Caiaphas feared, such news would spark a Roman response and put down the potential of the Jewish belief that the Messiah had arrived. And Caiaphas was not concerned in Jesus' power over the dead. He was concerned with what the Romans would do. He said it's better to kill him, even if it's unlawful and unjust, and in effect, if it's an act of murder, than for the Romans to come and destroy us. It's expedient, he says. It's self-servingly to our advantage that this man should die rather than the entire nation. And of course, his statement reflects two sentiments, doesn't it? The first is that Caiaphas represents not just the Jews. He now represents the human race who believes it's convenient to put the Son of God to death. And second, Caiaphas was absolutely right in a way that he didn't know. It is to our advantage that this one man die for all of us. And that, as we know, is what Jesus did. He died so that we might have the opportunity to escape the judgment to come. Yeah, this unjust trial of unfounded charges and slander and lies and cruelty and barbarism and execution, this was necessary so that we might recoil when we see our sins as they are and see God's love as it is. Thanks for your message, John. I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different today. I want you to point the finger. Who is responsible for the death of Christ? You know, Ben, that's, uh, it's so important to ask and to answer that question. The question is answered very, very simply. Every single human being who has sinned is an enemy of God. And had we been there at that time, and had we been in the place of authority, we'd have done exactly what all the various men of authority did. The finger is pointed directly at every single human being who has sinned. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Easter, according to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. 
For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.